Good evening and good day everyone. Welcome to episode 27 of the Ask Abhijit show. And today we're going to speak about black holes and quantum mechanics and artificial intelligence and science. So let's get right into it, my friends. Let's go for it with question number one. So the first question is, according to quantum immortality, Schrodinger's cat should live. Which of these two concepts is valid? That's an interesting question. So let me uh, explain what quantum immortality is. So it's a thought experiment in quantum mechanics. So it, there are several interpretations of quantum mechanics, as I hope you are aware. One of these, the most widely accepted one until very recently has been the Copenhagen interpretation, in which says that uh, particle superpositions basically a particle remains in a superposition until it is observed and where it was before that is not meaningful at all. So don't ask questions, just calculate and get the results. That's the Copenhagen interpretation. There are several others, but one of the important ones is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is uh, due to Hugh Everett. So according to this interpretation of quantum mechanics, Every time an observation is made, so before an observation is made, a particle, let's say an electron, is in a superposition of states. The moment you observe it, the superposition, the wave function collapses and it resolves itself in one place. But until then, it was in many places at once. So according to the many worlds interpretation, every time you make a measurement, the world line splits off into two branches or several branches possibly, usually it's two. And the, the electron is in one place for you, but it's in various other locations in another parallel universe. So that's the many world interpretation. So essentially it says that every time you make a decision, a choice, every time you do that, the world splits, your world line splits into two branches. So, so for, exa for example, it looks like this. Uh, so here it is. So this is you. Basically, this is you. And when you make a choice, let's say you are flipping a coin. So in, and you see the result is heads. So this is the result for you. But in another parallel universe, you got a tails. And every time you flip a coin or make any choice in your life, the, the world line keeps branching off into, into several branches in this manner. And eventually, it looks like this after some time. And eventually, over a longer period of time, it looks like this. You know, your, your world line branches off in so many different branches. And this basically, or for example, this, this is the kind of decision tree and world line that you get branching world line every time you make a choice. So this basically this image could represent what you have done over one, maybe one day. All the choices you made in one day, they led off to the branching off of your world line into so many different branches. So th basically it means that there is an almost infinite number of parallel universes in which you exist based on the choices you have made in your life. So for example, try and rem remember a time when you had a close shave, maybe an accident or an illness in which you barely survived or you, you got very lucky. Well, according to this theory, there is a parallel world in which you did not survive that. You know, So, so that is the entire basics, basis of the uh, many worlds theory. 
that every time you make a choice, every time uh, something happens, there is also something else which would have happened. So the thought experiment is like this. Let's say that you have a loaded gun in which there are only two chambers. And one chamber has a bullet, the other chamber is empty. And you're playing Russian roulette with yourself. So you put the gun to your head and you pull the trigger. Now let's say you get lucky and it was empty. But in a parallel universe, you got you were not lucky the because you made a choice of pulling the trigger. So the, your world line split into two branches. And in one branch of the world line, you got lucky and there was nothing in the, in the chamber. In another one, you did not get lucky. You got shot and you died. But your consciousness doesn't exist anymore in the other world. It only exists here. So every time you, basically, according to this theory, every time you play this game, in one universe, you will die. In one universe, you'll survive. And your consciousness will always remain in one universe. So it will appear to you that you keep on getting lucky every time you pull the trigger. So that is called quantum immortality. That every time a situ that you are put in a situation where you may live or die, both these possibilities will occur in two different branches of the universe or in two parallel universes. The universe will split off and your consciousness will survive in the world in which you have survived. But in a parallel world, you will have died. So according, if you take this far enough, it means that you never die. No matter what happens, you never die. You always get lucky because your consciousness somehow does survive in one branch of the possibilities of your world line. And if you take it far enough, it means that no matter what happens, your consciousness will survive. Even when your physical body is on the point of dying, it somehow lingers on, lingers on, lingers on. And it seems to indicate the many worlds, in, uh, this, this thought experiment of quantum immortality and this many world theory, it kind of seems to indicate that consciousness, your individual consciousness, essentially will survive forever. And therefore, it means that you are quantum mechanically immortal. Basically, it says that your consciousness is local. It is local. It is tied to this physical body. But it will survive on somehow. Even if you go into a coma and everyone thinks you're dead or whatever, your consciousness lingers on somehow. So that is quantum immortality. Now let's talk about the cat, Schrodinger's cat. So you place a cat in a box and uh, you give it half an hour. You put some uh, something in there which will either kill it or let it live. So the chance of the cat living or dying is 50-50. So every time you open the box, you will find that the cat is either dead or alive. And when the box is closed and you don't know what's inside, it means the cat is, is in a superposition of states, dead as well as alive. Now, according to quantum immortality, the question is, the cat should survive, it should live, right? But only from its perspective, not from my perspective. So if, if I was the cat in the box, then from my perspective, I will never die. Of course, I may die, but in a parallel universe in which my consciousness no longer survives. So from my perspective, I keep on surviving. But if I'm an external observer and I'm watching a cat, then from the cat's perspective, there's always a world in which it survives. But from my perspective, it may have died. So it's all about perspective. It's about the perspective of the observer and the person who's actually experiencing this. So from an external observer's perspective, the cat may die 50-50. But from the cat's perspective, from its own world line, it will always survive. So that is the concept of quantum immortality. It's a very interesting concept. If 
the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct, then it essentially indicates that your consciousness will survive forever. It may even somehow transcend the death of your body. It, it may it, it may look like that. So it's a very interesting concept in, in quantum mechanics. The, the real debate is whether this theory, this interpretation, the many worlds interpretation is correct or not. So there's an increasing number of physicists who are gravitating towards this concept, who believe that this concept, this, this interpretation, the many worlds interpretation is indeed the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics. So th this debate is still the, out there. It's a matter of opinion among physicists. And uh, it's not yet proven because we still don't understand quantum mechanics, but this could be one of the possible interpretations and possible ways, possible uh, things that quantum mechanics is trying to tell us. So that's a very interesting question to start off with. Okay, Avinash asks, what is it like inside a black hole? <laughs> so let me tell you a story, a fable. So once upon a time, the butterflies, you, you know, butterflies are fascinated with the flame, right? They love the flame. Butterflies and moths, like they like to go towards the flame and they, they uh, somehow sometimes get killed by the flame. So butterflies are fascinated with the flame, by the flame. So once upon a time, the butterflies got together. They organized a scientific conference to um, discuss and try to... Uh, try to unravel the mystery of the flame. What is the flame? So the best butterfly minds got together. The best scientists, theoreticians, experimentalists, etc. They came together for a conference and they all discussed and debated among each other. What is the flame? Okay. So after several hours, one of the young butterflies got tired. He said, I'm going to go and find out for myself. So one of the young butterfly scientists, he flew off. He went towards the flame. He went very close to the flame almost got burned. He came back. He came back to the conference and he explained what he experienced. So the wise old butterfly who was the head of the conference, he said that very good. Thank you very much. Very interesting. But unfortunately, we have not really, uh, we don't really have any new information about the flame. So another young butterfly goes out. He says, I'm going to find out. So he goes, he flies all the way to the flame. He even touches it, gets burned, comes back and tells what happened. Once again, the wise old butterfly, the chairman of the conference, he says, unfortunately, even your experience doesn't tell us anything new about the flame. Then a third butterfly goes to the flame. He flies to the flame and he goes inside the flame and he gets burned. So the butterflies from far away, the conference, they're observing what happened. So the wise old chairman, the chair butterfly, he says that, yes. So finally, one of our people, our young friend has finally understood what the flame is. But unfortunately, that information, only he knows it. We will never know it because he'll not be able to communicate it back to us. So we, my friends, are these butterflies and the black hole is the flame. So unless we have a black hole in a lab or somewhere nearby and we can actually go and observe it, we can't really tell what it's like inside a black hole. And if one of us were to actually go inside a black hole and find out what's inside, we'll never be able to come out and tell our friends what's inside. So that is the truth of, of black holes. We don't know what's inside. We have no means of knowing what's inside. We don't have a black hole somewhere nearby that we can go and observe. We have 
observations of objects that appear to be black holes they seem to be abundant in the new in the universe every galaxy seems to have a supermassive black hole at its center but what's inside what's beyond the event horizon we still don't know because our physics breaks down inside the black hole uh, general relativity black uh, uh, breaks down the curvature becomes infinite density of mass and matter and energy becomes infinite it's called a singularity a singularity indicates that your theory has broken down it doesn't indicate there's an actual infinity in there so we don't know as of now what's inside a black hole and that is why black holes are such a fascinating uh, topic and that's why so much research is being done to unravel the mysteries of the black hole and one of the possible ways of doing this is to try and reconcile uh, general relativity with quantum mechanics and create a quantum theory of gravity so that is the big big audacious goal that we have right now to create to f- try and create a a quantum theory of gravity so that would possibly resolve and throw some more light so to say onto the onto the question of what's inside the black hole as of today we are not really sure akash asks would we be able to distinguish a black hole from a wormhole if we discover it is there any chance that some of the black holes we have discovered are actually wormholes and what would a wormhole look like that's a very interesting question so black holes and wormholes are very similar from an, for an external observer at least from from a distance they both are extremely massive objects they create extreme uh, distortions in space time they very strong gravitational fields and and that's why from a distance a wormhole could very much look like a black hole so a wormhole is essentially as a hole in space time so in the three dimensional world a hole is a two dimensional object isn't it a hole has two dimensions in our world so in a four dimensional world in four dimensional space time a, a hole would have three dimensions so it would essentially a wormhole would essentially be a spherical object but unlike a black hole which is completely dark or completely transparent a wormhole would not if you go if you were to go close to a wormhole it would actually you would actually be able to look through it and see the other side of what's on the other side of the wormhole because a wormhole is essentially a tunnel that uh, that connects two disparate regions of space time so if you were to find a wormhole and if you were to peer into it you would be able to see what's on the other side of the wormhole in a in a region of space time that's really far away so that's one difference if you can go close close enough then you would see that there is something at the other end of the wormhole if it were to be if it were to be uh, if it, it were if it were to stay open for a long period of time which would allow you to observe the second thing is that the question is that is there any chance some of the black holes we have discovered are actually wormholes that's a very interesting question so a wormhole let's say you have a supermassive wormhole let's say that one of the uh, supermassive black holes at the center of a galaxy is actually a wormhole okay so what would uh, what would the uh, phenomena be like around this wormhole so essentially a wormhole if it were to be a traversable wormhole it means that matter can fall inside the wormhole right and because of the extreme gravitational field that a supermassive wormhole would have that matter that falls inside would be accelerated to relativistic velocities extremely high speeds a significant percentage of the speed of light so it would be very very moving very fast 
extremely fast. And matter from the other side of the tunnel would also be falling into the wormhole at extremely uh, high speeds. So it's there is a significant possibility that matter it is, that is falling inside from both the ends of the wormhole would actually collide in the throat of the wormhole. And this could give rise to enormous explosions inside, which would spew matter outside again. So extremely highly energetic uh, gamma rays and radiation, etc. would come out of this wormhole. And we do see such phenomena. It's called quasars. Quasars are active galactic nuclei. Uh, what's believed is that these are supermassive black holes with an extremely uh, massive accretion disk around them. And it is the infalling matter of this accretion disk that causes all these extreme uh, jets to be spewed out of this black hole. And that's why it is so luminous. For example, a quasar would have a luminosity of several times, of several times the entire luminosity of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So that's how luminous these quasars are. So if this was a wormhole in which matter is falling inside from both ends, then it could conceivably give rise to a seminal phenomenon. So it is definitely possible that these quasars, these active galactic nuclei, may possibly be wormholes instead of black holes. It is certainly a possibility, and it is a possibility that is, I think it is being taken quite seriously. So as of today, we don't, unless we have a wormhole nearby that we can actually go and observe. Unless we have that, we can't really tell. But from the mathematics of the, the physics that we know, from the physics that we know, we it is quite it's quite clear that these are very similar objects, at least from a distance. But there are certain phenomena that we can predict, and if we can find signatures of those, of those phenomena, for example, extremely energetic gamma rays, then it would indicate possibly that there's a wormhole there instead of a supermassive black hole. So I think it's a it's an it's an area of active research as we speak. Okay, Ishant asks, how can light have momentum if it has no mass? Is there a problem in the equation of momentum? That is p equals mv. Well, light has momentum, and we get this from very basic quantum mechanics. So let me. I hope you're not very scared of math because let, I'm going to show you some math. Hang on, let one second. It's a very simple derivation. Let me, okay, let's remove this. All right, here we are. So do photons and momentum. So we know that from Einstein's uh, famous equation, E equals mc squared. If you can see the equation number one here, E equals mc squared. So uh, mass is equivalent to energy. Energy is equivalent to mass. Now, in case of a photon, which is light, we know that it has no mass, but it has a frequency. And the relationship between frequency and energy is E equals HF, where H is the Planck constant. So the frequency tells you what energy the photon has. Now, we know that HF equals mc squared by combining these two equations, equations one and two. One and two. So we get this relationship, HF equals mc squared. You rearrange that, you get m equals HF by c squared. So the photon has a relativistic mass of sorts an equivalent mass, which is given by h, Planck constant, multiplied by the frequency of the photon, divided by the square root of the speed of light, uh, by the square of the speed of light. Now, as you said, the equation of momentum in classical physics is p equals mv, where v is the velocity of the particle. In the case of the photon, v, the spe speed or velocity, is the speed of light. So we put v equals c, 
And by combining these equations, we get P equals HF by C. But in quantum mechanics, we know that the frequency is equal to the speed of light divided by the wavelength of the photon. And by putting all that together, we get this relationship, the equation 9, which is P equals H over lambda, which means that the momentum of a photon is equal to the Planck constant divided by the wavelength of the photon. And this is why, this is how we know that photons have momentum. And this is experimentally observed. So that is a very simple, straightforward derivation of the momentum of a photon. It's a simplistic derivation, but it, I think it illustrates very well why photons have momentum. So there is no problem in any equation of momentum, of momentum, etc. It's all perfectly valid. Okay, Anumita asks, can you please explain the theory of quantum mechanics that tells us that the world is an illusion? Well, quantum mechanics is strange and weird, etc. It doesn't really tell us that the world is an illusion. It tells us that there is something deeper. There is a deeper un underlying reality that, uh, that lies beyond what we can actually observe. So the best theory that we have of the ultra microscopic quantum world is actually called quantum field theory. And according to the quantum field theory, the best theory that we have, which explains the world in extraordinary precision. So according to quantum field theory, there are no particles. Particles are an illusion. Even vacuum, even the vacuum of space is an illusion. So yeah, you could say that the world is an illusion. The particles are actually local manifestations of fields, of infinite fields. So in the standard model of physics, you have 17 known particles, okay? And these essentially are the manifestations of 17 different fields. So all the uh, light that we see, it's photons, which are excitations in the electromagnetic field. Uh, the electrons that make up our body and everything that we, that we know, these are manifestations of the electron field. Okay, these are local manifestations of the infinite electron field that permeates the entire universe. Then the, the protons and neutrons that are in our body and in the world, which make everything up, these are composed of up quarks and down quarks. So these are manifestations of the up, up quark field and the down quark field. So these 17 fields permeate the entire universe. It's just so the electrons that make up the world that we know, that are a part of the world that we know, they are basically part of the same field that permeates the entire universe, the same electron field. So the, the electrons in my body are part of the same field, electron field, that are that give rise to the electrons in your body or wherever you're sitting, etc. So this is quantum field theory. So this is the, the more fundamental underlying reality of the world. So yeah, in a way, the world that we see is an oversimplification that our senses make so that we can make sense of the universe because the reality actually is much more complex than, than what we perceive. It's like you have a cell phone and uh, when you open the cell phone and you, you can uh, send an email, etc., by clicking on some icons, etc., and the, the interface, the graphical user interface of your cell phone, it hides the complexity that's really in there. All the circuits and voltages and the zeros and ones and the layers of softwares and algorithms and all that. If you had to toggle one, if you had to toggle ones and zeros, and if you had to toggle voltages to send an email, you would never be able to send an email. So your 
cell phones graphical user interface over simplifies the world to make, to help you make sense of it and similarly our sensory or, organs they over simplify the world so that we can actually make sense of it otherwise it would be too complicated and it would need too much processing power in our brains to cognitively observe it and process it and make sense of it in real time so the reality is much more complicated and what we see is you could say essentially an illusion colors are an illusion everything is an illusion we actually are made up of fields interacting fields fields that interact with each other and give rise to the interactions the four main the four known forces and maybe some other ones too who knows so that in short is quantum field theory it does tell us that the world is kind of an illusion we are actually all composed of fields even vacuum is not vacuum it's not really empty it's teeming with quantum fluctuations which obey heisenberg's uncertainty principle so the world is really way more complex than we can ever imagine so that in brief anumita is quantum field theory which kind of tells us that the world that we see is actually an illusion mayank asks is it possible that we are living in a black hole is it possible that a black hole has eaten us and we are inside it and also is it possible that every black hole contains an entire universe around it so this is a question that many physicists have taken up seriously in the past that it it may be possible that black holes could contain a baby a black hole could possibly contain a baby universe inside it because we don't know what lies beyond the event horizon so it is conceivable that there could be if you have a large enough black hole it could essentially have an entire universe inside it it is conceivable but so so let's consider the possibility that our universe is essentially is actually the inside of a black hole of, a, of an enormous black hole so is it is this consistent with what we know about the universe and the laws of physics so we know that uh that the universe has a temperature there is an average temperature of the universe which is about 2. Point something kelvin which is extremely cold it's just barely above absolute zero so this is the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation that permeates the entire universe so and we know that there are black holes supermassive black holes that are colder than this and they are smaller so the so basically if you we know that black holes have a temperature and based on the temperature of a black hole we can determine the radius of the black hole and the volume and area of a black hole it's all interrelated right the radius of a schwarzschild radius is 2 mg by c squared where m is the mass of the black hole g is gravitational newton's gravitational constant and c is the speed of light 2 mg divided by c squared that is the radius schwarzschild radius of a black hole and the mass is proportional to the temperature of a black hole so we can calculate the temperature of a black hole from the radius and vice versa we can calculate the radius of a black hole from the temperature now if you had a black hole which had the temperature of our of our universe then it would be much smaller the calculations shows that they it would be much smaller than the radius that the than the size of the observable universe it would be very much smaller than that so this is one inconsistency that we have that for a temperature of 2. Point something kelvin you get a re- reasonably small black hole not something that's bigger than the 
observable universe. This is, that is the first inconsistency. And the second inconsistency is that we know that the universe is expanding. It's expanding. Now, black holes don't expand. Right? Unless there is something inside a black hole, uh, only a certain region of space inside a black hole that expands. We don't know that. Right? So there is another inconsistency that our universe is actually expanding. We know it's expanding. We have observed it. We are aware of the fact that it's expanding. We have, this is proven by, by uh, observational evidence. But black holes don't expand. So once again, this is an inconsistency. So there are inconsistencies uh, if you try to assume that we are inside a black hole and that the universe is the interior of a black hole whose temperature is 2. whatever Kelvin. So it doesn't look like the universe is the inside of a black hole, but it may be possible that these small black holes that we have, even supermassive ones, may contain a universe of some kind inside them. It is possible. But most likely the universe that we live in is not the interior of a black hole from the best information and knowledge that we have. Akash asks, how did we determine the Planck length and that it's the absolute smallest length? Considering that our understanding of quantum mechanics is far from perfect, how can we be so sure about it? This is a very excellent question, a fundamental question. So, okay, I'll, I, it's better that I show you, so I share a screenshot with you, which would make more sense. One second. Here we have this. Uh, let me remove this question for a minute. So the question is, how do we, how did we determine the Planck length as the smallest length? So we have four fundamental, I'm sorry, not this one, the next one. Here we are. Okay. So we have four fundamental constants of nature, four fundamental physical constants. First one is the speed of light in vacuum, which is this one here, 300,000 meters per second or whatever it is here. Then you have the Planck constant of the reduced Planck constant H cross equals H upon 2 pi, which has this value here. Then you have the gravity. So the speed of light in vacuum is the universal speed limit in the universe. The Planck constant is what is the constant that relates the energy of a photon with its frequency or wavelength. Then you have the gravitational constant, which has this value, which essentially is a, is a measure of the strength of the gravitational interaction. And then you have the Boltzmann constant over here, which you can see, which essentially relates the average kinetic energy or of the particles in a gas with the thermodynamic temperature of that gas. So these are the four fundamental physical constants. And by combining these constant in, constants in a variety of in a variety of ways, we can come up with units, which are called the Planck units, which are the Planck length, the Planck mass, the Planck time. Planck energy and the Planck temperature. So the, so the Planck length is the square root of h cross g upon c cubed. And if you calculate that, it gives you the dimension of, of meters. It's, it's a length and it is of the order of 10 raised to minus 35 meters. So that is how it has been calculated. It is the smallest length that, that we can calculate. So let's try and imagine what, <laughs> what the Planck length actually feels like, right? So if, if an atom, if a hydrogen atom was the size of the earth, then the Planck length would be smaller than an atom. It would be maybe smaller than even an electron, 
right? So that's how small the Planck length is. So like I said, we have these four fundamental constants of nature. These ones here, the four top, uh, these four ones here that define these four constants of nature that define the properties of space-time. They define the fundamental properties of the universe and the nature that we live in. So the Planck length is currently the best currently known minimum length in the universe. Okay, it is, and it is the smallest length at which gravity, the force of gravity, can have any effect. And in loop quantum gravity, it is the scale, the minimum scale, or the only scale at which space-time itself is quantized. And in string theory, it is the scale of strings. So it is, so basically the significance is that in quantum mechanics, according to the laws of quantum mechanics, it is impossible to determine the position of a particle to a precision smaller than the Planck length. That's another example of the uh, significance of the Planck length. Basically, in physics, in known physics, a length smaller than the Planck length is essentially meaningless. It is unphysical. So the Planck length essentially is the fundamental limit of the resolution of the universe. The universe is, the universe is pixelated at the Planck length. So that is the significance. That is how we have derived the Planck length. And that is how we know that it is the as of today, with the laws of physics, physics that we know today, it is the smallest length that is possible in the in the known universe. Okay, so it is possible that in the future we may actually be able to uh, understand the world better, the universe better, and we may find something smaller than the Planck length. It is certainly possible. So here's the question, right? It's certainly possible if you can reconcile gravity and quantum mechanics, then we may be perhaps able to find something smaller than that. But as of today, this is the smallest resolution at which the universe makes any sense. Okay, Aditya asks, what is the black hole information paradox? Excellent question. So the black hole information loss paradox is essentially an inconsistency between quantum theory, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, etc., and general relativity. So uh, let's take a look at let's, let's look at look at it like this. We know that black holes radiate. It's called Hawking radiation, and we find out that this happens when we combine quantum field theory and general relativity. We we kind of combine it. There's a semi-classical calculation. Uh, which gives rise to Hawking radiation. So Hawking radiation, the radiation of black holes, is thermal radiation, which means that its temperature determines, which means that the temperature of a black hole determines the average energy of these particles, these particles of radiation. And this is called black body radiation. It's completely random. The only thing we know about it is the temperature. And it entirely depends on the black hole's radius, which is proportional to the mass, and the black hole's temperature which is also proportional to the mass, etc. Okay, so that's about Hawking radiation. It is thermal radiation. It is. It depends on the properties of a black hole, which is essentially three things. The mass of the black hole, the angular momentum of the black hole, and the charge of the black hole. All right? So this Hawking river, uh, radiation essentially tells you that black holes have a temperature. They radiate away. And because they radiate this radiation, they shrink in size. They shrink in size. And 
because they shrink in size, their mass decreases, their uh, radius decreases, right? And the uh, temperature black hole is inversely proportional to the mass of the black hole. So as the mass decreases, the temperature rises. So black holes get hotter as they shrink. And as they get hotter, they radiate faster. So they shrink even faster. So this is called black hole evaporation. Now this is an irreversible process, the initial state of the black hole. So let's say we have a black hole inside a box and we collect all the radiation that comes out of it. So the, at the end of the evaporation process, there's no black hole left. There's only radiation in a box. Now, this Hawking radiation is irreversible, which means that you cannot determine the initial state of the black hole from the final state, which is the radiation. You can have many initial states. Let's say a black hole swallowed 17 stars and became this big, and then it radiated away. But from the radiation, we cannot tell that it swallowed 17 stars. It could have swallowed 27 smaller stars or three bigger stars. And become a black hole of the same size, right? So many initial states of the black hole can give rise to this final state of radiation. So this Hawking radiation is an irreversible process, which is a huge problem in quantum physics because in quantum mechanics, processes are always time reversible, in principle at least, which means that one initial state gives rise to one final state. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between a final state and an initial state. And this inconsistency is called the black hole information paradox, right? So uh, it is hoped or believed that quantum gravity, a theory of quantum gravity, a quantized theory of gravity will hopefully resolve this inconsistency between quantum mechanics and general relativity and uh, perhaps solve the black hole information loss paradox. Uh, maybe it's possible that black holes don't evaporate completely and they leave behind plankons or plank mass remnants that are stable. And maybe the information stays encoded in these plank mass remnants, perhaps. That is one theory. Or maybe there's even a theory that this information that is lost, it is lost only in our universe, but it is perhaps preserved in another, another universe. It is preserved somewhere in the multiverse. So these are theories or speculations that may possibly resolve the black hole information paradox. As of today, we don't know what is the resolution. Maybe it is unsolvable. But that, in short, my friends, is the black hole information loss paradox. Good question. Okay, Arijit asks, what will be the future of humanity if, if a black hole is going to eat the whole universe? Where will humanity go or will everything come to an end? That's a good question. What if there's an enormous black hole outside of our universe which eats our universe? Well, we don't know how large our universe is. The universe that we can actually observe is about 90 billion light years in diameter. And the actual universe is most likely even larger than that. It may even be infinite. So can we have a black... Can First of all, we don't know if there's anything outside the universe. And if there is a black hole outside the universe which were to absorb our universe, then most likely it would take an infinite number of um, amount of time, firstly. And secondly, it would be so big that we would not even know about it. Right? Because it would have to be larger than the observable universe. Or maybe it's smaller, but then in that case, it would take an infinite amount of time to swallow our universe. So it's a hypothetical question. Most likely, if, if our universe were to be absorbed by a black hole, we would 
most likely not even come to know. Divyansh asks, uh, shortly after the Big Bang, the fundamental forces of the universe split up as the universe cooled down, symmetry breaking, yeah. How did this happen? And if we can achieve the temperatures at which this symmetry breaking happened, can we unify the fundamental force again? Excellent question. So the best theory that we have as of today that describes the evolution of the universe is the Big Bang theory, like you said. Now this theory is basically describes, it attempts to reconstruct the history of the universe. What happened? At what time? It doesn't tell us how it happened. It tells, it tries to tell us, it tries to reconstruct what happened. What were the different phases in the evolution of the universe? But it doesn't try to reconstruct how it happened, why it happened. So we don't know why the four fundamental forces split up, what made this happen, what caused the Big Bang. We don't know. We, we As of today, we don't know any about anything about this. But I can tell you about the... Uh, about the very early universe, which is a very interesting uh, epoch in the evolution of our of our history, so to say. So first of all, in the very, very early universe, right after the Big Bang, you had something called the Planck Epoch. So the Planck Epoch is basically the age, the history of the universe at a time shorter than 10 raised to minus 43 seconds. So after the Big Bang, before 10 raised to minus 43 seconds have elapsed, that is called the Planck epoch. So during the Planck epoch, it is believed that all four fundamental forces, which is electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and gravitation, these four fundamental forces, they were all combined together into one single fundamental force. So this is the Planck epoch when the universe was at nearly the Planck temperature, which is 10 raised to 32 Kelvin, which is an unimaginable temperature, right? So this was a very short epoch, up to 10 raised to minus 43 seconds in the life of the universe, when all four forces were combined into one. Then you have the so-called grand unification epoch, in which gravity decouples. So gravity has de decoupled from the four forces, and only three forces remain together, which is in, the, in a single combined force called the electronuclear force. So this grand unification epoch is between 10 raised to minus 43 seconds and 10 raised to minus 36, 36 seconds after the Big Bang. It is that small window of time. So three forces are together. One has decoupled. You have the electronuclear force. The grand unification temperature is higher than 10 raised to 27 Kelvin. Okay. To, to get an idea of that, the temperature of the sun, surface of the sun, is about 5,800 Kelvin. And the temperature of the core of the sun is about 15, 16 million Kelvin, which is 16 times 10 raised to 6 Kelvin. And the temperature of a supernova is of the order of 10 raised to 11 Kelvin. So the grand unification temperature is of the order, it is greater than, it was greater than 10 raised to 27 Kelvin. So 16 orders of magnitude higher than the, hotter than the temperature of a supernova. So that's the kind of conditions we had in the universe when the three forces were together, gravity had already decoupled. So we don't know how it happened. We don't know how the symmetry breaking happened, how the forces decoupled, etc. as the universe cooled down. 
but it is believed that we can achieve if we can actually achieve those temperatures then we can unify the fundamental forces again now it is not physically possible because the highest temperature we can achieve on earth in the lab is nothing compared to 10 raised to 27 kelvin or even the planck temperature 10 raised to 32 kelvin the temperature of a supernova is 16 orders of magnitude lower than the grand unification temperature our best bet is theoretical physics theoretical physics will be is what is hopefully going to help us understand these forces more and hopefully help us uh, construct a theory or or discover the so called theory of everything in which we have a single equation that describes all four forces so so yeah that that's the answer we it is not possible to uh to have these temperatures in a, in a lab it is beyond beyond the wildest dreams in the re- realm of possibility all we can do is uh, we can use our intellect and theoretical physics to try and reconstruct the the fundamental force which unified all four forces from which every other force was born so that is what we hope hopefully it will happen someday in the future tejas asks what is the god particle and why does it matter so this is a this is a, a, a name that has been given by the media it's not scientists who have given it the name the god particle it is journalists who have called it the god particle all right so uh, so this theory uh, emerged in the in the 1960s it was peter higgs who proposed that there is an additional boson in the standard model the 17th boson that imparts mass to matter so we know that i have discussed this before even today that we have this theory the best theory theory we know of is called quantum field theory in which you have the entire universe is made up of interacting fields 17 different fields so in the 1960s it was not known how the universe gets mass so peter higgs proposed that there is a boson a gauge boson whose field interacts with the other fields in the universe the 16 other fields in the new, in the universe and it is the strength of the interaction of these fields that imparts mass to particles to these fields so for example the electromagnetic field whose quantum is the photon doesn't interact with this higgs field and therefore the photon has no mass now the weak field the the um, the neutrino field interacts very weakly there are three kinds of neutrinos so there are three fields associated with those now these neutrino fields interact very weakly with the higgs field and that's why neutrinos are very small masses and the up quark down quark other fields they interact more strongly with the higgs field and therefore they have higher masses so it is the strength of the interaction of these fields of the 16 other fields with the higgs field that determines how much mass those the quanta of those fields have so that is the so called higgs field the so called god particle so the quantum of the higgs field is the higgs boson and that is what is popularly known as the higgs boson why does it matter because without it there would be no mass in the universe so it is the field and the particle that imparts mass to the universe without this particle and this field this universe would have no mass and life as we know it would not exist so that is the significance of the higgs boson and 
the Higgs field. Anmol asks how to mitigate problems like algorithm bias, bias in artificial intelligence. This is a very good question. So we believe that artificial intelligence is a god-like phenomenon which knows everything, etc. Well, that is not true. Artificial intelligence is essentially something that emerges mostly. Well, there are a number of ways to emerge to to construct or create artificial intelligence. One of the ways is machine learning, in which you have, in which you have an algorithm which is fed data, it and it learns on its own based on pattern recognition, etc. And that is how it develops its, its own so-called intelligence. It learns on its own. It is sometimes supervised learning, sometimes it's unsupervised learning, etc. But you you find that these algorithms they learn on their own. For example, you have these chess playing algorithms that basically learn how to play chess by playing lots of chess games against themselves, or by, or by going through a great amount of data of hundreds of thousands of chess games that were played in the past. So it learns on its own the rules of chess, and then it can start defeating human players. Now you have these other algorithms like language recognition algorithms, automatic translation algorithms, and text generator algorithms, which are able to generate text based upon certain keywords that you input. And it gives you very human readable text. It looks like it's been written by human beings. So this is basically the thing we're talking about. And this is where algorithm bias comes in. So algorithm bias is, it occurs in a variety of ways. First of all, uh, you may have a faulty algorithm, an algorithm that produces results that are systematically biased or prejudiced because of erroneous assumptions in the machine learning process, which could arise from faulty or poor or inaccurate data. Yeah, because if garbage goes in, garbage comes out. You know, that's the old adage in computer science. G-I-G-O, garbage in, gar garbage out. So if you have data that is inaccurate, it is poor, it is biased in some manner, it is not representative of the entire population, etc. For example, that's what happens. Or you can have pr problems introduced by people who design and train the machine learning system, who create algorithms that reflect either unintended cognitive biases of theirs, or actually real life prejudices, right? For example, I have seen this myself. You have this GPT-3 uh, text generation uh, artificial intelligence, basically. And if you input keywords related to India into it, it outputs text that looks like it has been written by Marxists, Hindu-phobic texts that reflect certain kinds of biases against India. So it is because these people who have been training the algorithm, when it comes to India-related subject matter, they have been basically feeding it texts that have been written by leftist and Marxist academics and left-oriented uh, journalistic publications. It's very clear. So whenever you input something related to India, keywords related to India into GPT-3, it gives you, it outputs you paragraphs of text that look like they have been written by some professor in JNU. Jawaharlal Nehru University. So that is a clear demonstration of algorithm bias. So either these biases are created by poor data or data that is prejudiced or it is slanted in a certain ideological or cultural direction. It either 
reflects real life prejudices of certain people of the people who are introducing the data or unintended cognitive biases or biases that are introduced by incomplete or faulty or prejudicial or biased data sets to train and validate these machine learning systems so that is algorithm bias so so you have to address the real reason why this bias has occurred either it is uh, a faulty algorithm or it is data that is not representative of the entirety of knowledge about that particular thing for example in the case of india if you feed only data that comes from left leaning journalistic organizations or leftist marxist professors then the machine learning algorithm will get trained on that and every time you give it keywords related to india it's going to give you output that looks like it's been produced by jnu professors so that is what algorithm bias is so the mitigation is it depends on how it has been introduced pritham asks can ai really develop consciousness and should we worry about it we should not worry about ai developing consciousness let me tell you why consciousness is a very is a very complicated phenomenon we don't even have a proper scientific definition of consciousness let me try and conjure up a definition of consciousness right here on the spot so what is consciousness what is a conscious system in my opinion i would say that a conscious system is a physical entity which essentially stores a snapshot of the external world within itself and it's able to cognitively process that and come up with scenarios and opinions about the external world so it's a system that contains a snapshot of data which comes in via sensory mechanisms about the external world and it's able to actually uh it's able to recognize that it is separate from the external world and it is self conscious which is which means it is conscious of itself of its of its own being separate from the external world so it's a very complicated matter right and it's not easy for any system to become conscious first of all it would need sensory inputs that evolve in such a way that it uh, it is able to get the whole gamut of sensory in- inputs not just what somebody else is inputting into it so as of today ai systems do have some input but that input is determined solely by the people who have developed the ai so they give it data that they decide that they curate and these ais don't have access to the world the way we do they don't have eyes they don't have access to uh, various other sources of sensory data so it's very hard given these limitations for an ai system to develop any thing that would that would come close to human consciousness and even if it were to become self aware what would it do with it because a human being when it becomes self aware at, at the age of 6 months or something it takes 15 20 years for it to become a useful human being who can actually make some changes or some impact have some impact on the world so it's very hard for an ai it's it's uh, to to reach that level because first of all ai is are designed by us the neural networks etc and uh, so because of all these factors and because of the limitations of the of the technology and because they can be switched off anytime etc we don't really have to worry about it what we have to worry about is the intelligent humans who use the ai who have developed the ai 
for certain purposes and who are using the AI. Because see, AI is a technology. Technology is always a force multiplier. In the Stone Age, we had sticks and stones, which did multiply the force that you, you could give as a punch. Now you had a stick or a stone, which gave you much more force and which made you, uh, which helped you exert that force or influence at a distance. So there was a force multiplier. Then you now we have guns and missiles and rockets, which are enormous force multipliers. And with the emergence of AI technologies, we have an even greater level of force multiplication. So now it's very easy for you to influence somebody across the world if you have access to AI systems. So we need to worry about the people who are developing AI. We don't have to worry about AI developing consciousness. That is a very far-fetched scenario. I don't see it happening anytime in the near future. Not, not in the next 20, 20, 30 years. Any significant form of consciousness. But AI is already a very powerful tool in the arsenal of, of, of countries like the United States and China and and whoever else is developing it. So it is that what we need to worry about. It can unleash a new age of colonialism, digital colonialism. We can all become digital slaves of these powerful AI nations, which is why India needs to, to, to wake up from its deep slumber and start taking AI, machine learning, quantum computing, all these technologies seriously. That is what we need to worry about. People who wield the AI, that is the real threat to humanity. Harshit asks, if AI is affecting countries' economy or employment percentage, then why developing countries like ours are chasing AI? Or even for that matter, why are developed countries like US, China, etc. chasing AI? That will not affect employment. Do we really need AI? Okay, that's a good question, Harshit. So the thing is this. Like I said, AI is a force multiplier. It makes you way more powerful than what you are. Who doesn't want power? It is the inherent nature of humanity to chase power. Power trumps everything. Power trumps wealth. The moment you have extraordinary power, you control the world. That is why they are pursuing AI. See, any new technology that has been developed in the past 100, 200, 500 years, it's only been used to enrich and empower countries and people and militaries. It's the first use of any technology, any powerful technology has always been in the service of the military, which is controlled by a powerful organization like a country or a monarchy or a dictatorship or whatever it is. That is why now we have corporations. So we have these big corporations in the US that are now uh, the owners of very powerful AI systems. But those corporations are under someone's power, aren't they? They are under the US government's jurisdiction. They are, the power lies somewhere else. So they, these corporations are tools in someone's arsenal. And that arsenal can be, that, that these tools can be used for regime change. They can be used to influence the, the hearts and minds of people worldwide, to shape opinions, to effect regime change, to, to overthrow certain governments to install certain people in power. It's very easy now with AI. So that is why AI is being developed. Yes, it will take away jobs and make people uh, and, and exacerbate the class divide in capitalistic countries. It may even uh, lead to great job losses in India. Who cares? The people who AI empowers don't care about this. 
Haven't you seen the history of the world in the past 500 years? It's all been about imperialism and colonialism. And it, it, we would be very greatly mistaken to think that to think that imperialism and colonialism is a thing of the past. It is not a thing of the past. We are still living in an imperial and colonial age. And we may be upon the threshold of a new age of digital colonization and digital imperialism. And many, and the countries that do not develop, that the countries that do not have the foresight to start developing AI capabilities of their own, they are the ones who will become the digital coolies of the world. So India is currently going in the direction because I don't see any development of any significance, either in artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, supercomputing, distributed uh, computing, quantum computing, anything of that sort. We are just consuming the products that the West is giving us, which is something that needs to change very quickly, very soon. All right, two questions. Why doesn't ISRO have its own space station? Only three countries possess space stations, the US, Russia, and China. And secondly, why doesn't ISRO do manned missions? Well, ISRO is not a decision-making body. ISRO is a pool of scientists, they are told. It is run by bureaucrats who, and it is run by the government of India. The bureaucrats are the one who, ones who are in charge of all the budget and everything. They are the ones who really control the, the body on a day-to-day -day basis, who do the micromanagement and all that. And the scientists, basically, they do what they are told and they are given a certain budget and they have to follow directions and obey orders. So the, the reason why ISRO doesn't do all this thus far, hasn't done all this thus far, is because the government of India has never had the ambition to make India a great space power. India doesn't seem to have that sort of ambition. Yes, there is a manned mission in the, in the, in the working right now. It was supposed to be launched this year, I think. But because of COVID, everything has been shut down. I don't see the Chinese being shut down, the Chinese space program being shut down by COVID. I don't see... SpaceX being shut down by COVID, but ISRO has been shut down by COVID. Everything has been pushed back two or three years or whatever it is. It is extremely disappointing, to say the least, that we have this lackadaisical attitude towards scientific progress and development. So it is because of this lack of political will and lack of political ambition that ISRO is lagging behind. We have the best scientists in the world, but they are not allowed to unleash their full creativity and energy in the direction that they should. So yes, we will have a manned mission maybe in the next year or two. We will demonstrate that we have the technology of sending people into space. Maybe 30 or 40 years in the future, we may have a small space station somewhere. Hopefully not, hopefully sooner. So ISRO, I mean, somebody in the government had recently made a statement that India aims to have its own space station. No time frame was given. So that's the situation right now. It is entirely due to a lack of political will and political ambition and a lack of political foresight. So ISRO has the capability to, to do a manned mission and to create a to construct a space station. I wish we would get more serious about space because in the 21st century, the two or three nations who will lead the world in space explorations are the two or three nations that will decide the future of every human being on the planet. So it is for India to decide whether we want to be the ones making the decisions 
or whether we want to be the ones doing what we are told. So that is for India's political leadership to look into. That is the decision they need to make. Abhishek asks, a dog breathes 45 times per minute and dies at the age of 25. Dogs usually live up to the age of 15 actually. A turtle breathes four times per minute and lives to the age of 300 years. Well, some tortoises, tortoises, I think the Galapagos tortoises live uh, beyond a century or two. Yeah. A human being breathes 15 to 18 times per minute and dies at the age of 80. Can you explain? By controlling your breath, legend says that one can extend, extend life, one's life manifold. Are there any contradictions? So let me give you another example. Whales, let's take the blue whale. The blue whale can can hold its breath for up to an hour or two hours underwater. And blue whales breathe maybe once or twice a minute when they are on the surface. So by this, uh, by this, uh, by the logic that you provided, a blue whale should be able to live 500 years or a thousand years. But blue whales live about 80 years or maybe a hundred years. Similarly, dolphins also can uh, hold their breath for a very long period of time. They breathe a couple of times a minute or two, three times a minute. Uh, The large dolphins, orcas, so-called killer whales in popular culture, they also can hold their breath for a very long period of time. But they also don't live beyond 50, 60, 70 years. So there isn't a real pattern here. One can give many significant counterexamples, especially the ones I just gave. But it is believed, I don't know if there have been any any proper scientific studies about this. It is definitely possible that by controlling your breath, you achieve a greater control over your cardiovascular system. And it it will definitely have significant health benefits. We know that pranayam, the practice of pranayam has very significant health benefits. We also know that eating less, eating like 20% less, can extend your lifespan by 20 years or 20%. So there are these things, there are these, uh, this wisdom that has been passed on, especially in India for thousands of years. So it is time that Indian scientists should do detailed, proper, long-term studies about this. And only then will we be able to really know in a quantifiable scientific way what the truth really is. There does seem to be some wisdom in there. I mean, our ancient wisdom has to be taken very seriously. Yes, of course. But in the 21st century, our scientists need to take that wisdom and analyze it properly and quantify it and then demonstrate to the world that our wisdom is is indeed correct. So for for the example of the breathing that you've given, there are contradictions, definitely. Like like I said, all these aquatic mammals, they breathe very less, very few times per minute. They can hold their breath for couple of hours at a time and yet they don't live that long. So there is clearly a contradiction here. So what I would say about this is that this in the in the case of human beings, we need to investigate this properly and thoroughly using science. Ashutosh asks, Neil Tyson says the world's first trillionaire will come from asteroid mining. Who owns the wealth mined from asteroids? owner of the company or government or the UN. See, it's like this. Right now you have uh, you have 
we we are on the threshold of the privatization of space what that means is that you have these private companies like spacex and and virgin galactic and blue origin that are taking the that are currently at the forefront of space exploration yes they are beginning to venture into commercialization of space etc so in the next coming decades you will see private companies being at the forefront of this now who owns this wealth the un is irrelevant the un is a nobody or it's an organization with no power they have no jurisdiction anywhere okay they are basically a stick that the west uses to beat the rest of the world with when they choose the un is irrelevant it it is an organization of with no power now who owns this wealth is it the owner of the company so in the future if spacex goes into asteroid mining will elon musk own all the wealth well elon musk doesn't own the company he owns maybe a share of the company so by the time spacex if it does grow that large it will have a number of investors a number of owners it will have a number of hidden owners and many of these owners will also be owned by somebody else so in the end it's always the most powerful group of people in the country which is the government it's always the government which has the which holds the ultimate power and every company no matter how wealthy you are you are you are basically under the control they can change the laws anytime they can exert their power anytime so if it is an american com- company that is doing the asteroid mining the wealth will belong it will be under the control of the us government that's what it is so it is the overall power structure that you have to see to understand who owns the wealth power always trumps wealth harsh asks uh, what do you think about the future of local space travel what do you think the future of local space travel and tourism will be will it become feasible accessible and popular form of travel on earth in the light of virgin atlantic's successful space flight demonstration should the indian government take this up as a near future project or should it promote private aerospace startups or companies to take this up i think the indian government i think the space tourism is going to really take off in the coming decade by the time this decade is out the 2020s i think space tourism will become a regular feature virgin galactic has taken the first step in this spacex will be definitely doing this uh blue origin will also be into space tourism so these are us based companies they will earn a lot of money from the rich people of the world from the wealthy people of the world in space tourism i mean who doesn't want to go up into space and see the curvature of the earth and float around in zero gravity for a few minutes it is a great thrill and every wealthy person will line up for this for sure and soon you will have uh, trips around the moon as well which is going to start happening in the next 2 or 3 years spacex will be i believe taking the initiative in this so this is definitely going to be a very attractive form of tourism especially for the wealthy class for the wealthy people people who have a few million dollars to spare yeah it is not going to be uh, accessible to the ordinary middle class people of the earth not anytime soon not in the next 30 40 years maybe maybe in the next 30 40 years or 50 years but as of now it's going to be the thrill of the wealthy people and it's going to generate a lot of money for the companies that do this should the indian government get into this i think the indian government should get into strategic geopolitical scale space exploration which means setting up bases on the moon 
on Mars, having a space station, having all the capabilities that every other country has and beyond. So India needs to take the lead in space exploration from a strategic and geopolitical perspective. Space tourism should also be encouraged in India, but by private players. So India needs to create an environment that is conducive for private companies to start making their own rockets and and starting a space tourism kind of business. As of today, entrepreneurship is very hard in India. The environment in India is not conducive for entrepreneurship. We don't have any Silicon Valley kind of setup anywhere in the country. It's very hard to be an entrepreneur. It's very hard to be even a small business person. And if you become bigger in business, there are all kinds of hardships and hurdles that you have to overcome. Bureaucratic, policy-level hardships that and, and roadblocks and all kinds of uh, problems that, that any business person faces. And that's why big business doesn't take off in India. Uh, you see, I mean, you see this, you see millions of examples of this. So as of today, India doesn't have a conducive environment for this sort of business. So that is the job of the Indian government. It needs to reform the Indian system, make India business friendly, especially encourage local businesses using high technology to to create startups like these, you know, space startups. I know there is one or two, there are one or two space startups in India. What have they achieved thus far? How many space launches have they been able to do? So that is the state of, 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 of affairs in this country. And that's what needs to change. So the government should not go itself into space tourism. It should create the right environment and the right milieu for this sort of business to emerge and prosper and flourish in India. Okay, is the universe conscious? We don't know. It could be. But here's the thing about consciousness. We are all conscious, aren't we? But we are not conscious of what's happening inside our brain. We are conscious of the external world. So our brain or our mind is a conscious entity. We associate it with with, with our body because it is tied to our body. And we are conscious of what's happening external to our body and external to our mind. We don't know what's happening in our subconscious mind. We don't know what's happening in our neurons, in our brain. We don't know what's happening inside our body. We can have, we can sense, we can sense the beating of our heart. We can sense our lungs breathing and we can sense certain other things. There is some feedback, neurofeedback, etc. But as far as the mind goes, we are conscious of nothing that's happening internal to the mind. So consciousness is projected externally. We are conscious of what's outside of the consciousness. So if our universe were conscious, and if it were similar to our consciousness, then it would be conscious of something external to it, not something internal to it. So in case our universe is conscious, it would it would not be conscious of us who are basically organisms living inside the universe. It would only be conscious of what lies external to it. So that would basically uh, uh, work only if there's a multiverse of sorts. So if there are other universes out there, if there are other worlds out there, and if our universe is conscious, then it could conceivably be conscious of what's outside 
So maybe we can ask the universe if we can find a way of communicating with it, what's external to it. That's an interesting thought. So the, the answer is we don't know if it's conscious. But it could be. Because if you look at the large scale structure of the universe, at the very large scales, at kiloparsec scales, thousands of light years, then the filamentary structure of the universe, the filaments that comprise these superclusters of galaxies, etc., the structure, the filamentary structure of the universe is exactly the same as the neural structure of our brain. So it's it does look like the internal structure of a brain. So that's why people have conjectured that the universe could be a conscious organism on its own. The question is that how do thoughts, uh, how, how do thoughts uh, form in this conscious universe? Because in our in our mind, in our brain, thoughts are believed to be the result of these uh, neural processes, these electrochemical signals that travel between our neurons, and that has a certain speed, right? Now, in the universe, you have we know there's a speed limit, the speed of light. Now, it would take hundreds of thousands, or even millions, or even billions of light years for these thoughts to actually occur, because of the enormous distance distances that we know exist in the observable universe. So unless there is something like wormholes or traversable wormholes or cosmic strings, etc., that could possibly help the universe think as a consciousness in real time. But it's all hypothetical, it's all conjectural because we don't know. So to answer in short, maybe it's conscious, but if it is conscious, it may not be conscious of us. It may be conscious of something that lies external to it. Okay, Ayush asks, almost all the EdTech views show space-time curving below a planet or star like a trampoline, but there's no top or bottom in space. Then does it mean space-time curves in all directions around a planet or a star? And if so, how can a black hole have infinite curvature of space-time in all directions? So the trampoline analogy that is used in popular uh, science programs is just an analog analogy. A trampoline is a three-dimensional object. Space-time is four-dimensional. So we cannot visualize four-dimensional space-time because we are three-dimensional creatures. The world we live in has only three dimensions, right? We can only imagine or conceive of a world that has three dimensions. So it is not possible for our for our brain, for our mind, our consciousness to imagine something in four dimensions. And that's why we use this three-dimensional analogy. And therefore, what does curvature in four-dimensional space-time look like? We don't know. We can't imagine it. That's why we try to re replicate it in three dimensions. So it there is curvature, but we don't know. We, we don't know how to visualize it because it is not possible for us three-dimensional creatures to visualize it. But mathematically, there is indeed curvature. When it comes to black holes and infinite curvature, see this infinite curvature of black holes, the singularity, it is something that, that arises out of the equations of general relativity from the mathematics of these equations. And in mathematics, whenever you have a singularity and infinity, it indicates that your equations are faulty. So, <clears throat> so this infinite curvature that you get from these equations, it actually indicates that the equations have broken down at the ultra microscopic scale. It tells you that this theory, this, these equations, they work only in the 
large scale of the universe at large scales at classical scales they don't work at the microscopic and ultra microscopic scale they don't work at the quantum scale and that's why you get this infinity this infinite curvature most likely there is no infinite curvature there's something else in there but we don't know what it is because we have been thus far unable to reconcile general relativity with quantum mechanics so so the equations of general relativity don't work in in rather the equations of quantum field theory don't work in curved space time so these two theories are as of today they have not been reconciled and that's why you get these mathematical oddities like singularities it means your theory has broken down at a certain point i'm sure there is no actual singularity or infinity or infinite curvature or infinite mass density okay let's take a few live questions do we have any live questions we have lots of comments live chat comments Aman asks, does time exist for photons as general relativity tells us that time stops at the speed of light? How to be an astronomer, a physicist, etc. What are its future scope? See, the second question is a long question. So, I mean, there are lots of different explanations. So I'll answer your first question. Does time exist for photons? As general relativity tells us that time, general relativity does not tell you that time stops anywhere. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, photons are quantum mechanical particles, right? And general relativity does not apply at the quantum scale. So it appears that time may not even exist at the quantum scale. You know, we don't know what time is. Time is something we seem to sense, but we don't have a physical definition of time. We do use it in equations. We do use time derivatives. We do use time in graphs, etc. But we don't know what time is. What is time? Where does it emerge from? Is it an emergent property of the universe? Is it a local property of the universe? Is it something that is inherent to the universe? Or is it something that arises from the quantum scale? Do you have molecules and atoms of time? Or does time not even exist at the quantum scale? We don't know anything about that. It may even appear that time may be an illusion created by the decoherence of quantum phenomena. <laughs> so we don't know. So we don't know if time exists for photons. Does time even have a meaning for a photon? We don't know that. Time is the greatest mystery we have in physics. And uh, we are nowhere close to solving it. So time may be something that we perceive as something that emerges out of the decoherence, as a result of decoherence of quantum phenomena. Maybe that is what time is. Maybe that is the dividing line, line between past, present, and future. Maybe. We still don't know. So it's an excellent question, but that is one of the fundamental mysteries that we are currently grappling with in theoretical physics. Suraj asks, why is the Indian government not funding enough for space programs? I have not heard any minister talking about space-related programs. Why does the younger generation end up joining NASA when we have ISRO? Well, why do we? Why does the government not fund space? Because space doesn't have any priority. It is the farmers who have the priority for our politicians. 
it is these employment generation schemes and various other populist measures that get you votes because elections are very important votes are very imp- important you have to stay in power right so that's where all the energy and focus and, the, and all the money goes now we have isro and we have nasa so why does everybody join want to join nasa well what is the salary at isro my friends and what is the salary at nasa how are you treated at, at isro by the bureaucrats who run the organization and how are you treated at nasa there's a world of difference right so that is the reason why everybody wants would prefer to join nasa because you have you are treated with with much more respect your status is much higher your salary is several times more maybe 10 times 20 times more than you would get ever get in isro and you are not under the thumb of any bureaucrat in nasa yeah they have their own bureaucracy but it is a bureaucracy that actually is in, interested in furthering the space program and empowering the scientists not in keeping you down like indian bureaucrats in so that is the reason why nasa is far more attractive than isro isro is a brilliant organization we have the best scientists there they have done so much but they are not allowed to do what everything that they can they could develop much more powerful rockets they could build a space station they could send human beings to to earth orbit to to they could construct a base on the moon and send human beings there we could even send people in the next 20 years to mars if we were to empower isro but we have to treat our scientists well we have to f- make them feel like they are valued and they are respected we have to value them by giving them a salary that is internationally competitive right so that they don't feel frustrated and and unhappy and secondly we have to empower them into doing what they can do best which is do- developing new technologies and doing the best science they are capable of so that is what is needed and that's what's not happening and that's why nasa is more attractive than isro unfortunately even though our young people they do want to do something good for the country but they are not allowed to they are not allowed to the system in india doesn't value patriotism it doesn't value it doesn't advance talent it advances mediocrity that is the system we are living in that is what needs to be changed and the government is thus far not doing any of that because has there been any any reform in the bureaucracy of india in the past any significant reform in india's bureaucracy in living memory no so that's why nothing is changing okay let me take one more question something interesting sanskrit or tamil i have answered that question and it's not science my friend <laughs> today it is about science okay let me find some interesting question can diamonds be created artificially from coal by giving enough temperature and pressure yes it is done routinely in labs uh okay let's take this question by divyansh how does the flowing core of the earth generate a magnetic field around the earth can a huge moon also have its own magnetic field if the earth were a moon of jupiter it would have its own magnetic field yes 
So how is the Earth's magnetic field generated? So the interior of the Earth is composed of molten, it's mostly iron, I think. It's all metal at an extremely high pressure and a very high temperature. And at this temperature, and because of the conditions that exist so far, so deep inside, below the Earth's surface, this intense pressure, this intense heat, so that is what causes these electric charges to swirl around in the interior of this metal because metals conduct electricity and you have free electrons in metal, especially in molten metal, etc. So that's what causes these electric electric uh, currents and fields inside the earth. And whenever you have a moving charge, you have a magnetic field. So it is this molten inter- interior, this molten metal iron interior of the earth that generates the magnetic field that we have. And it is this magnetic field that enables us to stay alive because it shields us from all the cosmic radiation and the solar wind and everything, which is extremely harmful to human life and all other life on the planet. So that is how the magnetic field, that is how in short, in simple words, how the internal structure of the of the earth generates the magnetic field that protects us. And it's one of the reasons why we have a thick atmosphere, because the magnetic field of the of Mars, for example, has, has more or less died out. And because of that, all this bombardment by the solar wind and cosmic rays has stripped away the atmosphere of Mars. And it bec- it's become very, very, uh, the atmosphere has become quite sparse compared to the atmosphere on Earth. So it is one of the reasons why the atmosphere has become sparse. It's one of the reasons why all the water that once flowed on Mars has evaporated away. And that's the reason why Mars has become so barren and dry, at least on the surface. So yes, so that's how Earth, gen- the Earth generates its magnetic field. And yes, a huge moon can indeed have its own magnetic field if it is large enough to have a molten metallic internal structure. Okay, my friends, we are done for today. Thank you very much for your questions. Thank you for watching. And I will see you very soon in the next episode. This time we have a new topic, education. So I look forward to seeing you there. But for today, I wish you a good day, a good night. And see you next time. Bye.